This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's Bigger Question, why fight racism? We're asking today's Bigger Question to Bob Zellner. Bob is a leader in the American civil rights movement from the 1960s to today. He is the son and grandson of Ku Klux Klan members and he risked his life in the fight to achieve the second emancipation. His story is the subject of a new film, Son of the South, based on his autobiography, The Wrong Side of Murder Creek. And he joins me now. Bob, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you, Rob. I'm very happy to be on Bigger Questions. There are a lot of questions. Big there ones. Are, there are a lot of questions, and that's my job is to ask them. So maybe we'll start <laughs> off with one of the big questions, perhaps, as to start with. Your uh, story begins, in some respects, in the civil rights movement, begins in the 1960s. So can you maybe paint a picture of what life was like in the south of the United States in the early 1960s? Well, in the early 1960s, uh, life in the southern part of the United States was very similar, I think, to um, the way it must have been right before uh, the American Civil War, Mm -hmm. uh, because um, we were uh, faced with a um, Supreme Court decision that outlawed uh, apartheid, It outlawed segregation and public education. And um, everybody knew that uh, a lot of other things were going to follow from that. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that occurred in Alabama and my part of the Deep South was massive, what we call massive resistance. The South Mm -hmm. just said, no, we don't care what the Supreme Court says. We don't care what the federal government says. So they had uh, a system of what they call interposition. They would would break up the United States and uh, they didn't care about the union again, same way as uh, the original Civil War. And um, they said they would nullify any federal law that uh, required uh, them to do away with the strict uh, apartheid and segregation that we had in public facilities, education, uh, religion, all of those things. And because of that massive uh, resistance, there was a tremendous um, policing of the white population of the South so mm-hmm. that uh, the white population would be required to have a united front and any dissent uh, from the um, united front of segregation and racial hatred would be severely dealt with. So that was the situation that I had um, graduating from high school in Mobile, Alabama in 1957. I went to college in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. And from 1957 to 1961. And that's when George Wallace became the uh, governor of Alabama. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fight was on. Yeah. Because Montgomery was, uh, in many ways, at the heart of the civil rights movement, or the, the origins of it, wasn't it, with uh, Rosa Parks? Yes, that, that was uh, that was one of the ironies of being in a church school. Uh, my father was a Methodist minister, um, and so it was natural that I would follow my older brother to our Methodist church school in Montgomery, Alabama, and that was the... Um, place where the Montgomery bus boycott was successful under the Mm. leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King and Mrs. Rosa Parks and uh, Brother E.D. Nixon, who was the branch president of the NAACP there. 
So mm-hmm. I was in um, college for four years in Montgomery, uh, which was really the uh, uh, almost the the what do they call it the ground zero of the uh, civil mm-hmm. rights movement in the South, and mm-hmm. much of that is covered in the um, in the movie. But uh, I was like a lot of other. Uh, young white people in the South, especially who'd come, uh, become from an active background in the church uh, to have to make a decision. And we had to make a decision. And uh, luckily I chose to um, be friends with and, and follow Ms. Rosa Parks and, and Reverend Martin Luther King, rather than uh, the people who were uh, spouting hate and division. We, mm. we thought it was better. It was harder to do, but it's better to bring people together, especially if you follow the Christian doctrine of uh, uh, releasing the captive mm. and inviting the stranger and taking care of the sick and the poor and visiting the people in prison. And that became very important because we spent a lot of time in prison. Mm. We can unpack a bit more of your story, but before we do that, maybe can we just unpack a little bit about what life was like under segregation? Can you explain a bit what life was like in the South in that space? What it was like was uh, that the first uh, black student went to the University of Alabama, Ms. Authorine Lucy, and there was tremendous debate in our high school about uh, integrating the University of Alabama. And... It was the first time that I was um, acutely aware that I had a belief that was fundamentally different from uh, the overwhelming majority of my high school mates. And mostly my belief was shared only by the uh, Methodist youth uh, that were also in high school. And when I would say that I thought it was a good idea for authoring Lucy to go to the University of Alabama, most of the students would get very upset and they would say, don't let anybody hear you say that. Mm. And I would say, well, you heard, you heard me say that. And they said, yeah, but I'm, we know that you're crazy. If you believe anything as strange as integration, I mean, they just thought it was the most outlandish thing in the world wow. that um, yeah. black and white students should go to school together and sit in a classroom like normal people. Mm. That's what it but was you like. Also, you also had family members involved in the Ku Klux Klan. So, so what does it mean then to be a Klansman? Well, my father was a, a, a Klansman. His father was a Klansman. And um, what it meant was that you were uh, initiated very early on in your early teens, usually, into uh, some form of violence against people of color. And then you would... Uh, you would be accepted into the Ku Klux Klan. And um, that was just a normal thing for a young person to do, which my father did in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama Klan is a a very vicious uh, Klan, one of the most violent in the South. It's the same Ku Klux Klan that bombed the, uh, the church on Sunday morning and killed four little girls in Sunday school. And that's mm. the um, kind of clan that my father came from. But uh, I was very lucky because my father uh, went to Germany and Europe 
uh, in the middle 30s. Uh, and he went there with uh, Dr. Bob Jones, who was the uh, president of Bob Jones College, which became Bob Jones University, a very um, fundamentalist Christian, reactionary, backward clan university. And he was going to go to Europe uh, with the purpose of um, converting the Jews to be Christians so that the Nazis wouldn't, uh, wouldn't kill them. Right. And I remember, I remember asking my father if he had converted any Jews. And he said, no, but they converted me. And that, so he told me the whole story of his conversion from being a Klansman to becoming a human being and a good Christian. Right. And uh, so that was, uh, that was a good thing for me because I didn't get, uh, as a small child, I didn't get the racial hatred teaching at the foot of my father and my mother. Mm. And my mother's side uh, were of the family. They were not at all enthusiastic about the Ku Klux Klan because she came from a family that was related to the Native Americans in um, Alabama, the Apalachicola Band of Creek Indians. And uh, her father was also a Methodist minister, but he had opposed the Ku Klux Klan. So I, at a very early age, I was already involved in this struggle between the dark forces and the forces of light. Wow. So then what was it that particularly stimulated your interest in being involved in the civil rights movement? Well, when I was uh, at Huntingdon, we were assigned a paper. I, I was in sociology. I was a sociology student. So uh, one of my senior classes was a, a class in race relations. And um, we were assigned a paper to write our senior thesis on uh, uh, solutions to the racial problem. And so uh, some of us began to research it, and we came to the conclusion that um, the racial problem was basically white people, and therefore we needed to learn enough about it so that we could see if we were the problem in, the, in race relations, how to fix that. Mm -hmm. And that's when uh, myself and four other students decided to go and uh, interview uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and Mrs. Rosa Parks and Brother E.D. Nixon, the branch president of the NAACP. We were going to interview them for our paper. But our professor said, you can't do that. And we said, why not? And uh, the professor said, because you will be arrested. But being sociologists, uh, young sociologists, our sociological imagination was piqued by the idea that a student could be arrested while doing research for a paper. Mm. We did uh, go to interview them, even though the professor said we were not to do so. So we went to a, an anniversary celebration of the victory of the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm -hmm. And John Lewis was there, one of the uh, leading uh, students, and they did a nonviolent workshop. And we participated in the workshop. And then uh, Dr. King preached a sermon. It was the first time I heard him preach a sermon in, in person. And then at the end of the uh, program, Dr. King came over and said to us five white students, he said, the church is surrounded by the police 
and the press is out there, and they've sent word that the five of you will be arrested. And so we said, well, we need to escape. We didn't want to get our uh, school in trouble. We didn't want to get our parents in trouble. And, and we were very far from being any revolutionaries at that time. <laughs> and, and we said, we haven't taken a position. We're just trying to study here. And yeah. uh, I remember Reverend Abernathy said, well, I don't know if the police will understand that. But um, so we arranged that Dr. King would go out the front door and Mrs. Parks and Reverend Abernathy would take us down to the basement. And if the police came around the front, they could open the back door and we could run for it. So that's yeah. what we did. But while we were waiting for the signal that Dr. King had uh, pulled the police and the press around to the front, uh, Mrs. Parks uh, touched me on the, on the left elbow and said, uh, Bob, when you students, uh, you can't study this forever and something's going to happen that you're going to have to take aside and not choosing is a choice. So that was uh, a, a challenge directly from St. Rosa Parks. And if uh, Mrs. Rosa Parks suggested that you get involved, then you'd better be about the business of getting involved. So wow. that, was, uh, that was the beginning so of my work in the civil rights movement. So Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were deeply influential in your involvement in the civil rights movement. Yes, they, uh, they agreed to become our mentors and they, we met with them uh, quite frequently. And um, I wound up being arrested and serving time with, uh, with Dr. King in jail in, uh, in Georgia. Mm. So uh, sometimes when I, I, I speak to... Uh, young students, sometimes first, second, and third grade students, and I tell them that I uh, was mentored uh, with, uh, by Mrs. Rosa Parks, and I was in jail with Martin Luther King. Uh, one little third grade boy said, did you meet Harriet Tubman or Abraham Lincoln? And, <laughs> and I said, well, we were all in the same movement, but they were there much longer, much before I was. You're not quite that old. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what was it like being in jail with Martin Luther King? It's quite amazing because um, we, we were, of course, we were segregated. So we had, they would put uh, the black prisoners in a, a part of the jail and they would put the white prisoners in another part of the jail. But we had ways of communicating. We'd send notes back and forth. Some of the uh, trustees would take notes for us and... Uh, and we, we sang, one, that was one way we could hear each other. So if they were singing freedom songs, we'd sing along with them. And so it was a, a very close spiritual experience to be going through that together. Mm. And um, we didn't know at the time that what we were involved with in would be a, such a, an important part of American history. Uh, but we knew it was important for us to do what we were doing. But uh, it's good to be able to say that uh, I was in jail with Martin Luther King. Mm. So, but that wasn't the only time you were arrested, though, was it? No, they, they, uh, one, of the, one of my problems in the movement was my first job in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was to be a campus traveler. So my job was primarily to go to campuses and talk to white students about what's happening in the movement. 
And um, so it was, sometimes it was difficult once I got arrested because it was always in the newspapers. It was all over the Alabama newspapers. And um, so more or less anywhere I went, uh, I had almost always had uh, police uh, uh, surveillance people following us 24 hours a day. So we'd be arrested in a lot of different places. So I wound up being arrested about 18 times. Wherever I went, they would find some way to arrest me. So why were people so opposed to your work? Uh, Well, one of the reasons they were so opposed to the work that I was doing is that I understood it was my responsibility as a white person to do anti-racism work. And usually when I went to a campus, um, especially if it was a church-related campus, there were always a few students there who were uncomfortable uh, for not having to uh, done something about the racial situation. So one of the reasons that they were so concerned about me was that I was uh, being successful in uh, bringing some other white Southerners to dissent, to say, we're, we're not in favor of segregation and we are going to become uh, allies and trustworthy allies of the uh, people of color who are working to get the vote and, uh, and get uh, integration in public facilities. And the white racists took it as a very uh, dangerous thing because white people were supposed to have a united front. And if there was, uh, if some white people were dissenting, they thought that um, more would follow. So they were very concerned to be come down as hard as they possibly could on any uh, Southern white people who who got out of line. Hmm. Well, Bob, yours is, a, is an extraordinarily powerful story and one which sounds worthy of a movie. Uh, and in fact, it has been made into a movie, um, Son of the South, uh, which is uh, being showing in cinemas all over Australia and New Zealand from Thursday, May 20. Uh, if you want more information, you can go to sonofthesouthmovie.com.au. But how did you react when you were approached about making a movie about your story? Well, it uh, it kind of uh, started gradually because I met uh, Barry Alexander Brown, who was the director of the movie and uh, uh, wrote the script for the movie. And I met him in New York um, when I was uh, teaching in uh, the university in uh, in Long Island. And um, we were both from Alabama, so we began to share stories about growing up in Alabama. And when I told him of some of my adventures, he's being a movie person, he said, oh, I think there might be a movie in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, w- he was a, a very skilled uh, movie director. In fact, the first movie he ever directed called The War at Home uh, got a, uh, an Academy Award nomination. So he was... Uh, he was a wonder kid uh, in movies, and um, he was working with uh, Spike Lee as Spike Lee's main editor. So mm-hmm. um, he said, well, let's put together a script and see what Spike says, and if Spike will support us, I think we can do this movie. So uh, Barry and I got together, and we 
wrote the first script for the movie, and it was it was uh, the first draft was done in 1987. And Barry then took it to uh, to Spike, and uh, Spike had already told him that if he finds a movie that he wants to direct, um, that Spike would help him get the movie made, and so. Uh, Barry brought him the script for Son of the South, and Spike Lee looked at him like he'd gone crazy, and he said, you want me to make a movie about a white civil rights worker? And Barry said, well, just read the script, and Spike, if you're not interested in it, just tell me you're not interested, and I'll never mention it to you again. Mm. But Spike took the script, he read it, he brought it back to Barry and he said, "That's a heck of a script, and uh, let's do it. I'll help you. I'll help you make this movie." So that's the way it began uh, mm. back in the late '80s, and it, it's taken this long to get the dang thing made. But it's <laughs> uh, it's a, a testimony to how persistent uh, Barry Brown was and Spike Lee, and one of the reasons was they both are from Alabama. Spike mm. Lee's family is also has deep roots in Alabama, and um, they worked together until they got it made. Mm. So it's a confronting and thought-provoking film. So what's something that you want people to consider when they watch it? Well, one of the things I I hope they will consider is that it uh, deals with some universal themes. Uh, dedication and courage, uh, doing the right thing. And uh, I think it may uh, resonate with people in Australia. Mm. Uh, I remember when the book first came out in 2008, the book was uh, done much later than the movie. Uh, Some of the early letters that I got were from Australia and people said, uh, and they were Aboriginal people and they said, this is a wonderful story. It's very much like that here. So people mm. have seen some universal themes in it, and I hope they will take that and say, uh, yes, there's still a lot of work to do wherever we are. We thought that we were out to save the world 50 or 60 years ago, and I'm not sure what we were trying to save the world from. Mm. Now, Bob, the uh, the Bible proved to be a great inspiration for civil rights leaders, and many of the public meetings were held in churches. So how important was the church in the civil rights movement? The church was, uh, was a basic foundation of the civil rights movement for two reasons. Number one was the uh, in the black uh, community coming out of slavery, the church was the only institution that they completely... Uh, ran and controlled so that they had their own church buildings, they had their own property, uh, they had their own leaders, they, they, they had their own elections to uh, elect the leaders. And of course, the other reason that the Bible was so important was that the Bible is a, is a, a message of freedom. The Bible is a message of um, freeing the captive. Uh, the Bible is a, a, a book of bringing people together, not separating people. So that was, uh, in fact, it was such a problem during slavery that one of the uh, underpinning 
ideas of, of, the, of the excuse for slavery was that they would convert the heathen uh, Africans to be Christians. But the uh, slave owners understood fairly early if they converted them to be Christians and they had their Bible and they had their preachers, they were going to be reading about uh, Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage mm. in Egypt. So they were going to be getting bad ideas about freeing themselves. So the slave owners were so concerned that they made a special Bible for slaves. And they took out a lot of the, uh, a lot of the book of Exodus. They took out a lot of the book of Genesis. And they took out a huge amount of the New Testament. Because wow. if you read about Jesus, you want to tend to free yourself and free others. So that was uh, the Bible and the church were extremely important for the movement. And Dr. Martin Luther King himself quoted extensively from the Bible, and especially in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he quotes or alludes to the Bible several times. And one reference was from the Old Testament prophet Amos, uh, which says in Amos 5.24, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. So how much do you think then uh, did you see the civil rights movement as a justice question as well? Yeah, well, it was definitely a, a justice question because um, the, the search for justice and the striving for justice uh, did two things. Number one, it did uh, free the captive. Uh, but number two, it freed the people who were working for uh, to free the captives because uh, in order to get justice, it means that you are you have tyrants. You have very, very dangerous, bad people, and they will put you in the lion's den. So the Old Testament and the New Testament demands that you have courage. In fact, the mm -hmm. early Christians, and this is the way I learned a lot of my... Uh, determination was that once my father had broken from the Ku Klux Klan, he began to work with Dr. King and uh, uh, Reverend Joe Lowry and other people in the Alabama uh, church community to bring about a, a better race relations. So, Bob, why fight racism? We have to fight racism, number one, because it hurts us. Anything that hurts uh, people as much as racism has hurt people. Uh, racism has fueled genocide so that one group of humans have decided that their life would be improved tremendously if they can just wipe out all of these other people. And it's based on racism. And uh, racism has never produced anything that's good. But anti-racism and bringing people together has created all kinds of good. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, why fight racism from Amos 5.24? But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Bob Zellner. Thank you, Rob. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast support the show, go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.